they print them fraudulently, this will be a rigged election if they're allowed to do it. Well, it may be a lost election for you, Mr. President, if they're allowed to vote. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it's not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Up in Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, up in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. Yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Internet as well on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from Bradblog.com. All right, coming up, we, we will be joined by an expert on election technology who used to work, used to, at a private voting machine company that Desi Doy and I reported on quite a bit over oh. the years at various times at bradblog.com. Uh, the good news is he has now moved to a nonprofit group that is fighting for transparency and public oversight of elections, pretty much the opposite of what the private voting machine companies do, uh, who are you know concerned about how to make money off of our elections rather than fighting for our democracy itself. Anyway, he has been responding of late to the barrage of lies with which Donald Trump and his attorney general, Bill Barr, are hoping to undermine this November's election and the use of absentee ballots, you know, to keep people from dying because they choose to vote in their own democracy this year in the most critical election this nation has probably ever seen. Anyway... You can look forward to that conversation momentarily. But first, speaking of pathetic, deadly liars. No, not my guest. I'm talking about Trump and Barr there. <laughs> we played this clip a, a week or two ago. But but here again is the execrable. Is that execrable. how you say it? Execrable. Or something like that. <laughs> hideous Republican <laughs> governor of uh, Florida. Ron DeSantis on May 20th of this year attacking the media apparently for warning about what health experts were saying would happen if they opened the state of Florida way too early for safety exactly as Ron DeSantis did. You got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York 
wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Actually, yes, it has happened. We're now about 12 weeks from that after you flew open the doors to the business and beaches and, and, and governor. And, and it has absolutely has happened. And it is very bad in your state, governor. Remember when the even more hideous Sean Hannity of Fox News offered a similar rant on the very same day about how dumb the media and other politicians who didn't follow Florida and Texas's example of opening up their doors in the middle of a pandemic, how dumb all of those people were. Florida got it right, Texas got it right, and guess what? Now it's time for all the states to follow their lead. We need to learn from the abject failures, meaning New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan. This is where we learn from the dumb ideas and the dumb policies that were made in the middle of corona. Did they do it on purpose? No, I don't think they did it on purpose. Did they did it, do it because they're stupid? Yeah, that's a big part of the reason. And the mob and the media, by the way, you owe Governor DeSantis a huge apology. Oh, do we? Do we? Stupid? Has Sean Hannity ever been right about anything? Has his little mini-me, uh, Ron DeSantis, ever been right about anything? The worsening coronavirus pandemic has now hit a series of somber peaks across the U.S. as hospitals are once again becoming overloaded with COVID-19 patients, just as we saw during the initial onset in the New York metropolitan area back in March and April. Well, now it is happening in much of the country with, yes, Florida and Texas helping to lead the way. At least 56 intensive care units in Florida hospitals reached capacity on Tuesday. According to state officials, another 35 hospitals show ICU bed availability of 10% or less at this point. That, according to the Agency for Healthcare Administration in Florida. Georgia surpassed 100,000 reported coronavirus cases, becoming the ninth state to pass that mark. Way to go. Well done, Georgia. In California, the number of hospitalizations across the state were at an all-time high, and the virus positivity rate jumped more than 2% here in Los Angeles. Again, that's the positivity rate, the percentage of tests that are coming back positive, not just the number of positive cases due to increased testing as the administration and Ron DeSantis and Sean Hannity and other Republicans around the country are trying to gaslight you into believing. They're trying to con you about a deadly pandemic, which certainly must be unlawful according to someone's laws. No? I don't know. But there will be a reckoning. As more than 3 million confirmed coronavirus cases are now reported in the U.S., with experts believing there are likely millions more that have not been tested or confirmed, the need for testing itself has increased, leading federal officials to set up new testing sites in Florida and Louisiana and Texas just days after they had, had announced that they were going to be shutting down that federal testing in Florida and Louisiana and Texas. Remember that? Just last week, I think. Hospitals in Texas and Florida and Arizona in particular are flooded with critical 
COVID-19 patients. And some local and state officials have finally made face coverings mandatory where their Republican governors at least have allowed them to do so. As the average daily rate of new cases is now about 50,000 or more in the U.S. That is both the highest rate recorded and twice as high as it was just one month ago. So a 50,000 per day average of new cases now and Texas alone reported more than 10,000 new cases on Tuesday. Des, that's your old home state of Texas uh, with one-fifth of the total new cases on Tuesday. In the United States? Yep. Wow. That is their uh, highest single-day total uh, since the pandemic began because, you know, I guess everything's bigger in Texas. So nice work. Governor Abbott, you were right on top of that as well. Thank you, sir. Thank you for opening the state to business. More than 131,200 people now in the U.S. have died from coronavirus, according to data from the very conservative Johns Hopkins University. And over at the University of Washington's even more conservative Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, uh, where they have a coronavirus model that is often cited by the White House, well, projections for U.S. death totals were increased yet again in that model on Tuesday. They are now forecasting more than 208,000 deaths in the U.S. by November. Remember, their projected deaths were initially about 60,000 by August back in uh, March or April. Well, we are now more than twice that projection. So take their new one with a grain of salt. 208,000 deaths in the U.S. by November. They will likely continue to uh, increase that prediction, I suspect, unless serious social distancing measures are reinstated around the country. Face masks, according to the same University of Washington model, could save as many as 45,000 lives in the U.S. by November if 95% of the population wears a covering in public, which I don't see happening currently, not even here in L.A., where the rate has gotten so high of late. Chris Murray, the director of uh, the IHME, told uh, CNN that it's an incredibly simple strategy and intervention. It's one that will save lives, but it will also help the economy enormously because it will avoid shutdowns, which will inevitably come when things get quickly out of control in many states. Nearly 6,000 coronavirus patients are now hospitalized here in California. That's the highest number since the pandemic began, and the state is seeing a record number of COVID-19 patients in ICUs, according to data from the uh, Department of Public Health here. California is only one of several states, however, that are reporting record numbers of hospitalizations. Medical facilities in Florida, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina are all being overrun by the surge of cases, according to CNN. At least 31 states have shown uh, showed an upward trend in average daily cases, an increase of at least 10 percent just over the last seven days. As of Tuesday morning, according to data from Johns Hopkins, only four states have seen average daily cases decline more than 10 percent over those same seven days. For the record, those four states are Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire and Rhode Island. Nice going, guys. 
After weeks of health officials encouraging the public to wear face masks, at least 35 states, along with Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, have now implemented face covering requirements to help mitigate the virus spread. And yet, according to other health experts, the death rate this year in the U.S. could be far higher than that 200,000 number that the University of Washington, uh, Washington came up with. But it depends on what choices that we make right now. For example, if we are wearing masks or not wearing masks. The U.S. could see hundreds of thousands more deaths this year than earlier anticipated. According to epidemiologists and demographers who spoke with TPM's Josh Kovensky, painting an even darker picture than the one from IMHE, uh, estimating that the total U.S. COVID-19 deaths this calendar year could range from 260,000 to half a million, 500,000 before the end of the year. Andrew Neumer, a demographer and associate professor of public health at the University of California in Irvine, is predicting a COVID-19 related death toll on the high end of that particular range. But he emphasized the number of variables that could affect the final numbers. He said it partly depends on us. It depends whether there's a fall wave in the Northeast, which has otherwise effectively brought their new cases down to virtually zero in some places. And, uh, says Neumer, whether uh, people get some religion when it comes to masking. And, he notes, it depends on the effect of restarting schools, K-12, through all of which are things that nobody really knows the answer to. The range comes with caveats, he says, that are largely based on the behavior of both people and their governments. Guys like Rick DeSantis, who is uh, declaring that schools must be opened in Florida next month, Depends how they respond to the current outbreak, uh, and that will likely determine the uh, case fatality rate by the end of the year. The proportion of people who die out of the total number who are infected. The Washington Post quoted a former Trump administration official familiar with White House thinking on Monday as saying that they're of the belief that uh, people will just get over it. Or if we stop highlighting it, the base will move on and the public will learn to accept 50 to 100,000 new cases a day. That is a stunning view to come out of uh, out of the White House. Stunning. 50 to 100,000 cases a day. But don't worry, you'll get over it. You'll get used to it. You'll get bored with it. You won't even hear it anymore. That's their plan. That's their hope. To Neumer, the uh, UC Irvine demographer, the broader picture was of a country stumbling over the same roadblocks over and over and over again, because that is sure what it feels like. I know, I got to say, I'm sure tuning into this program these days uh, sounds a lot like Groundhog Day to listeners at this point. Well, it feels like it sometimes, too. But, you know, hey, global pandemic, how you doing, United States? Not so well. Not so well. Neuer said the U.S. is making mistakes, and to my mind, he said, what's more important and poignant is that we are not learning from them. Sounds about right. We are not. 
As we discussed yesterday, the president of the United States and governors like DeSantis are demanding, demanding that schools be reopened five days a week for in-person classes beginning next month. With all of these numbers, all of these details, all of these warnings, all of these concerns I've just read to you. Never mind that. Let's go open. Let's get back to class, back to school. This at this point is a death march, a death march. Americans are being sent to their deaths by the tens of thousands knowingly by this administration and its flunkies around the country who still seem to believe that this somehow, somehow is going to help them win re-election in November. On Wednesday, with all of those facts I just shared with you and undoubtedly many more, Vice President Mike Pence who leads what amounts to whatever is left of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, he announced, quote, it's time to get kids back to school and that the CDC will now issue new guidance on reopening schools after President Trump had dismissed the current recommendations as, quote, very tough and expensive. Tough? Because they might keep children and their teachers and their parents from dying? Expensive because we're now measuring deaths against the cost to the economy in the run up to Donald Trump's reelection contest. Really? Yes, really. Speaking at a briefing by the White House Coronavirus Task Force, I believe it was their second one in as many months. So they only do it when they absolutely have to. Vice President Mike Pence said the new CDC guidance would be part of a five part series of recommendations that will give all new tools to our schools. Pence said we're absolutely determined to work in partnership with our states to give the guidance for states and communities to be able to safely reopen our schools. Because, you know, it's time. It is not time. This is a death march. Yes, the Trump administration has now even co-opted the once vaunted U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC itself, which because Trump did not like their science and health based advice on how to reopen schools safely. He has now ordered them to do it over, take a mulligan, do it all over again. But this time with more death to somehow help goose the economy in the very short term in order to help my re-election chances, please. And yes, he is threatening to cut off federal funding from schools who do not fully reopen this year. Uh, this is sick. This is twisted. You are being conned, or at least they are trying to con you, and send you to your graves in the bargain. This is a mad administration. It is being led by a madman who does not care if you or even your children or your parents or your grandparents, he does not care if any of them die so long as he wins re-election. That's it. There's really nothing more to it than that. There's no other reality than that. That's it. Period. End of story. So don't be conned. Don't be gaslighted. They don't care if you die. And in fact, they are happy to encourage that so long as they believe it may somehow help them win re-election. This could not be more twisted 
and criminal and sick, at least in my opinion. I don't believe we've ever seen anything like this in this country, ever. We will look back on days like today with ghastly shame and horror in the not-too-distant future. At least those of us who are lucky enough to still be alive by then. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You've got to have heart. All you really need is heart. Yeah, that's an inside joke between me and my upcoming guest in a moment. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, I guess I have one thing in common, at least with the Trump administration. I also cannot think of much else other than the November 3rd presidential election at this point. To that end, an interesting development reported this week by the Washington Post. President Trump's relentless attacks on the security of mail voting are driving suspicion among GOP voters towards absentee ballots, a dynamic, alarming Republican strategists. They say it could undercut their own candidates, including Trump himself. Well, that would be sad. In several primaries this spring, they report Democratic voters have embraced mail ballots in far larger numbers than Republicans during a campaign season defined by the coronavirus pandemic. And when they urge their supporters to vote by mail, GOP campaigns around the country are hearing from more and more Republican voters who say they do not trust absentee ballots. In one particularly vivid example uh, reported by the Post, a group of Michigan voters held a public burning of their absentee ballot applications last month. It's very concerning for Republicans, said a top party operative who, like several others interviewed for the piece, spoke on the condition of anonymity to avoid drawing Trump's ire. We have to have sophisticated mail programs, they said. If we don't adapt, we won't win. The president, however, has been arguing the opposite nearly daily in recent weeks. And usually on Twitter, Trump has attacked mail balloting leveling many unsubstantiated allegations. He has claimed without evidence that it will lead to widespread fraud and that foreign governments will try to dump millions of forged ballots into U.S. elections. Because of mail-in ballots, 2020, he said, will be the most rigged, in all capital letters, so you know he means it, the most rigged election in our nation's history unless this stupidity is ended. He tweeted late last month. Of course, he has uh, he's also got his uh, latest fixer and the most corrupt attorney general in the history of this nation, William Barr, to play along with this particular hoax. Here was Bill Barr on Fox News just a few weeks ago. Uh, there's no right now a foreign country could print up tens of thousands of of uh, counterfeit ballots and be very hard for us to detect which was the right and which was the wrong ballot. So I think it, it, can, it, it, it can upset and undercut the confidence in the integrity of our elections. 
If anything, we should tighten them up right now. Really? Of course, you know, Bill Barr is very concerned about the integrity of our elections. You also know the real reason that Trump opposes widespread absentee voting, even during a pandemic, to keep people safe. When more people vote, as they tend to via vote by mail, more Democrats do tend to win. At least that's Trump's fear, as he made clear on Fox and Friends just a few months ago, as election officials around the country were asking for about $4 billion to expand vote by mail operations, which Democrats supported, but Republicans blocked. The things they had in there were crazy. Uh, They had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. Aha, there we go. That, of course, is the real reason that Donald Trump opposes vote by mail. He thinks that Republicans can't win. But if you read the Brad blog or you listen to the Bradcast uh, over the years, you know that I personally am no huge fan of vote by mail other than in cases where someone actually cannot vote at the polls on Election Day for any reason uh, or if they are forced to vote on a 100 percent unverifiable electronic touchscreen like system at the polling place. Or, of course, in the midst of a massive global pandemic when forcing people into crowded polling places is akin to offering a choice between risking death or losing one's right to vote. And yes, there is voter fraud, uh, not election fraud by election insiders or hackers, but actual voter fraud. Not a lot of it, but where we do have it in this country, it does tend to happen via absentee voting. Not on the levels that Donald Trump or Bill Barr are talking about, but it is a concern and it's one that I think Democrats ought to pay a bit more attention to. But while Donald Trump and Bill Barr are out there mostly lying about the risks of vote by mail, some of us have been trying to tell the truth about it. One such person who knows quite a bit about this sort of thing is Edward Perez. He recently wrote a Twitter thread in response to many of the false claims about vote by mail and a few days ago expanded that Twitter thread into a helpful and detailed blog item at the Open Source Election Technology Institute. The blog item is headlined, Stop the Nonsense About Counterfeit By Mail Ballots. Here are the facts, and it begins uh, this way. Uh, He writes, the baseless claims that the president of the United States and the U.S. attorney general have recently made about the possibility of foreign countries interfering with the November election by creating counterfeit by mail ballots are gaining lots of attention and with good reason. These assertions need to be thoroughly clarified and corrected because they are not based in facts. Here to thoroughly clarify and correct some of these uh, baseless claims is, in fact, Eddie Perez. He's the global director of technology and standards at the nonpartisan nonprofit OSET Institute. That stands for Open Source Election Technology. Uh, That's a Silicon based uh, Silicon Valley based public benefit corporation devoted to research on election infrastructure and technology. Eddie has some 17 years of expertise in both election tech and election administration. He spent about 15 years as director of product management at the Austin based Hart InterCivic, one of the now just three major private voting system vendors in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to national media outlets. Outlets like the Washington Post, NBC News, Politico, AP, and he is an excellent follow on the Twitters, by the way. You can find him at Eddie Perez 
TX if you're concerned about all things related to election tech and administration. Eddie Perez, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, it's great to be with you, Brad. Wonderful opportunity on a really important topic. Well, thank you for your good work uh, responding to at least some of the nonsense coming from the administration regarding uh, absentee vote-by-mail ballots. I'd like to get to, uh, to some of your helpful debunkery in a moment, Eddie, but uh, as I mentioned... You spent 15 years at the uh, private voting machine company Heart Inner Civic, just one of the private companies that I've reported on quite critically over the years at bradblog.com. Uh, what made you decide to finally move from a private for-profit company like Heart to uh, a nonprofit, actually uh, helpful, even if I don't always see eye to eye with them, uh, uh, election integrity group like the Open Source uh, Election Technology Institute? That's a great question, Brad, and, and I'm glad, you, glad that you asked it. Um, the shortest version of the answer is I reached a point in my professional career where it intersected with my belief as a private citizen. Um, it became very clear to me that everything related to the development and the certification and the deployment of election technology, the way that it is being structured in our country today, uh, it needs to be rethought. It needs to be bigger. The world has changed, and the goals that we need to be doing in terms of national security and defense of democracy, uh, it's a very different world than, than it was 20 years ago mm. when the Help America Vote Act kind of set the boundaries. And so I really just reached a point professionally where um, I had backed up against all the walls of, of how this work gets done. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a deep expertise in it, and it was clear to me that the challenges that we face uh, they're bigger than that. And so I hope to be able to help uh, do research and nonpartisan work in the public interest to try to rethink election technology and its importance to our democracy. I, and I don't want to get uh, too much into it today because I want to focus on this uh, vote-by-mail stuff, and hopefully we can talk about it in the future. But uh, since, since you sort of raised the point, do you feel that these private companies, companies like Hart, are simply not structured in such a way that they actually can meet the needs of uh, of American democracy? Because I think they cannot, or at least they are not willing to. But it sounds like you're saying that just as a private company, it, 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 it can't do what the that what we need for our democracy. I think there are some serious things that, that need to be looked at there. I, I definitely agree with you, Brad, that fundamentally I think what we have as a nation is a structural problem. And I think that you know, we ended up with an, uncon an uncompetitive, very consolidated election technology marketplace mm -hmm. that is uh, dominated by private companies that are not particularly transparent in many ways because a lot of our regulations and what we ask of them today, they're not demanding that of them. And so the reality is they are obeying the incentive structures that we as a nation have created with our laws and our regulations. Mm -hmm. And I think that until as a nation we change the structural framework and demand more of that sector and really take seriously its importance to our critical infrastructure, then there's simply no incentive to change. Mm. And it needs to. Our laws, our infrastructure, and of course our money. There's a lot of money that is given to that uh, to that sector now, and that too often, at least to me, seems to be the interest of some of those private companies, not democracy itself. So, you know, I'm sure we'll have uh, pl plenty of time to bicker about that in the future uh, and the use of you know what I regard as dangerous high tech, uh, frankly, whether it's open source or otherwise. But there's a lot of stuff that I think we can agree in agree on about. 
in your piece responding to some of the nonsense now coming from the administration about absentee ballots just months before arguably the most critical election in this nation's history. Your focus of your debunkery, as I called it, sort of began with a response to Bill Barr's claim that foreign countries can interfere with our elections by sending massive numbers of counterfeit ballots in. Now, I have, as I noted, a few concerns about vote by mail myself uh, over the years. That one was a new one to me. Is that a real is this? I mean, I got to give them credit for inventiveness there. Is is this a real concern that uh, foreign countries could send in massive numbers of absentee ballots, Eddie? There, there are real concerns about our election security. I would not put counterfeit ballots from foreign countries uh, anywhere near the top of the list. And there are really important reasons that people need to understand, uh, both in terms of the workflow and all of the different safeguards and validation methods that election officials are using, on the one hand, mm-hmm. and also uh, technical features of the ballots themselves, uh, what is required to make something that's going to be accepted by the voting system what are the different ways that things can be detected? Uh, for all of those reasons, it, it's simply uh, not correct, and it is not fact-based to say there is a tremendous risk here. I mean, shortly after the Attorney General made those comments, you, you had seasoned election administrators that were basically saying this is almost laughable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it reflects a lack of knowledge about real election administration. Well, whether it's a foreign country or uh, someone just sitting around their house, isn't it uh, easy to get a hold of an absentee ballot and you know scan that ballot on your uh, on your computer, print out a bunch of copies, and and just start voting like crazy in a bunch of uh, different voters' names? Uh, short answer: No, for for two reasons. Number one, it's really important for people to recognize that in the same way that when a voter goes to an in-person polling place there is a association that needs to be drawn between the voter and the official voter rolls. They, they look you up on a poll book, either mm-hmm. a paper poll book or an electronic poll book, and there's various ways the voter identifies themselves, and they need to effectively say, yes, you're on the list, you're an eligible voter, you are supposed to get a ballot. Mm-hmm. There's a corollary of exactly the same process that happens with by-mail voting. And whether, uh, as is the case in most states, most states currently are requiring voters to request an absentee ballot. If mm-hmm. they know they don't want to vote in person, you have to send in a form or do something online and say, I would like to vote by mail. When they do that, they need to double-check that voter's information against the voter registration rolls. And they are, in fact, ensuring that that is an eligible voter and it's only an eligible voter that's going to get that ballot. There's a very few number of states, only five, that for many years have been all by mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those states, um, it, this is not the norm. Voters do not have to request a ballot. If they are an eligible voter on the registration rolls, they will be sent one. But the important point in both cases is that voters that are receiving a blank ballot uh, through the mail for them to mark, it's not happening willy-nilly, and that's not simply being sent out without any regard for who's eligible. In fact, there's a, there's a one-to-one association between every blank ballot that's going out and a verified, validated voter registration record. So uh, I couldn't just start uh, passing out absentee ballots if I'm able to print them up on my uh, on my printer. I couldn't just pass around absentee ballots to all of my friends 
have them sign uh, someone's name and send those in and see those ballots counted, right? There are security checks on the other end that would actually, uh, would they reveal that I had actually printed those out on my printer rather than uh, this being an actual official ballot? That could certainly happen. You are hitting on one important point, which is the technical features of the ballots themselves, and even something as simple in, in your scenario of you know, photocopying a ballot, for example. Uh-huh. In order for a ballot to be properly scanned and to be accepted by the voting system as a valid ballot, there's really important printing parameters that matter. Uh, did you get the margins exactly correct? Um, all of us, I think, sometimes when you, you print something, an image, and the piece of paper that comes out, It might be substantially pretty similar, but if it's not really exacting, if you don't have the right image size, Mm -hmm. even markings that are sometimes on the back of ballots, many ballots need to be duplex. So there are technical features. Some of the technical features aren't even visible to the human eye. Uh, It might have a encoded in a barcode, Mm -hmm. a unique election identifier, or a unique ballot ID, so that when it's going through the scanner, the system might know I've already seen this ballot. Why am I getting a duplicate of it? I'm going to stop it and flag it. Or this ballot doesn't have the right election identifier. It's, it shouldn't even be accepted for this election. So those are important technical features that can happen. And then there's a whole host of more uh, va- uh, manual validation features that election officials need to do. And they also use technology and automation in association with these validation checks to ensure that every returned ballot that's coming back to the central elections office really is associated with an original ballot that went out and it went out only to an eligible voter. So what's to prevent then someone from returning a ballot that's intended for a different eligible voter, uh, as you note in your piece? For example, you know, all of the concerns along with absentee ballots being lost in the mail uh, of all of those. This is a, a very serious one, at least to me, at least in places like California, which is sending out. Uh, uh, VBM vote-by-mail ballots to all registered active voters for the first time this year. What keeps someone from receiving a ballot at their residence where someone may no longer live, but they haven't moved, they haven't changed their uh, voter registration, and I get a blank ballot in someone else's name? What keeps me from filling out that ballot and, and signing it and sending it in? The most important one is the critical step that you just mentioned, Brad, about the signature. Every ballot, after it gets marked, it's, it's whether it's coming back by that eligible voter or, in your scenario, someone that's not supposed to be voting that ballot, the ballot will be inserted inside a privacy sleeve, and then it goes inside what's known as a return envelope. Mm-hmm. And return envelopes in every state uh, have a very consequential, uh, legally binding attestation uh, on the back of it. The language changes from state to state, but the general gist of it is always, I am an eligible voter. I am only the eligible voter that this ballot was intended for. I'm only voting once. And these sorts of attestations are typically done under penalty of a crime. Mm -hmm. In many places, it's a felony. It's taken very seriously uh, if somebody signs a ballot that is not incorrect. So on the first step, there's a certain deterrent value in doing that. The second part, even if you had somebody that really was a bad actor and didn't care about that sort of thing, most states... Not all of them. Most states are using um, a process of signature verification Mm -hmm. on every single return ballot envelope. And so when a marked ballot is returned, the first thing that happens is typically those envelopes have a computerized barcode on them that allows the Central Elections Office, again, to associate it with an eligible voter, 
okay, did I, do I have a record that person is on the voter roll, mm-hmm. and they were, in fact, in the batch of ballots that we sent out? That's number one. And then number two, of course, is your question. Um, someone would literally have to do a, a forgery um, and be a good forger, um, which is actually difficult to do. And um, signature verification is one of the most important ways. Those, that process is typically done by bipartisan teams uh, at the Central Elections Office, and uh, you have oh. Dems and reps that are both looking at that very carefully. Some of the larger jurisdictions that have really high volumes of by mail even go so far as to train their election staff and those bipartisan teams on forensic handwriting analysis, uh, literally from people that might be associated with the FBI, for example. Well, let me let me jump in there. Uh, a couple of points. One, you uh, and and you do note importantly that uh, you can't just. We were talking earlier about you know copying up a bunch of ballots and sending sending them in. You also note that, yeah, there are specialized uh, secrecy envelopes and outer envelopes that you would also have to create somehow falsely for all of these fake ballots. But when it comes to signature matching, Eddie, I have a couple of I have a number of concerns. One, I know that uh, some jurisdictions do not do signature matching at all. Others yep. do do it, but they are not professional handwriting experts. And so, and you know, people's handwriting changes over time. I think I registered to vote in California maybe 20, 30 years ago at this point. I don't know if my signature is the same. Uh, right. But also, a lot of these jurisdictions, especially now as they're scrambling to expand vote by mail, a lot of them do not have the type of uh, 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 contact, you know, if if a signature does appear at least to be incorrect, fine. You contact the voter, you have them come in, you have them cure that defect. They say, oh, yes, that is my handwriting. I did vote that way. Uh, and everything is fine. But I know that a lot of the states do not have that infrastructure in place to contact voters, and they may just end up throwing out absentee ballots that they deem rightly or wrongly to be uh, fraudulent. You are correct in those concerns. And I honestly will say, I'm glad that you're raising it in this podcast, because it's a very real concern that I have also been raising on my own. And mm-hmm. this is something that everybody listening from now until November really needs to raise awareness out about. It's important to know every method of voting is going to have its own rewards and risks. Mm-hmm. And it is definitely the case. Uh, and as I said, you're correct to talk about it, that particularly with this massive increase in by-mail voting, the issue of potentially inordinately ending up with ballot rejections that shouldn't happen is a real concern. And the other reason that it's a real concern is that research has shown that historically the portions of the voting population that are most affected by those ballot rejections Mm -hmm. are either new voters or minority voters. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is as you can imagine, if you're a new voter or if maybe you are more accustomed, um, as you know, certain portions of demographics are, if you're more accustomed to voting in person at your corner precinct, the fact is not everybody will know or pay the closest attention to every single requirement about filling out your envelopes properly. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes the return ballot requires more than one signature. Mm-hmm. There might be a signature on the outside envelope. There might be an additional signature on the inside envelope. Of course, there's also simple requirements that have to do with deadlines. When exactly does the ballot have to be dropped off or received mm-hmm. in order to be counted? 
all of these are very real process-related things, and you're correct, that, that, and it is a worry that not all states, for example, use signature verification in particular. They have other methods in their own states of, of doing their validation process. Many other states, if they're not doing signature verification, they might require the voter to provide a photocopy of their ID, for example, or others require what can be onerous at times, witness signatures, mm-hmm. things like that. So if nothing else, um, the country needs to realize, and particularly I think election officials and particularly get-out-the-vote organizations, there's really, really good reasons to protect public health to make by-mail voting available to people as one of several options. Yeah. And that's really critical. For November, you've got to have a balance. You but do. You need to pay attention to educating voters about what it's going to take to ensure that their ballot is accepted and counted. Exactly. And this is one of the reasons why this uh, topic is a difficult one for political talk radio, because you know what? It actually includes nuance. And there are reasons uh, to be concerned. (laughs) There are, yes, uh, Bill Barr and and Donald Trump are out there lying about vote-by-mail by and large, but some of their concerns are real. So it's not an either-or, which, you know, doesn't lend itself well to uh, you're either with us or against us uh, type talk radio. So uh, I, I appreciate you walking through these nuances here, Eddie Perez. Uh, by the way, if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, would you be advocating vote by mail as the best way to cast one's vote and assure that it's counted and counted accurately as cast? I don't know that I would necessarily say that it's the, the best or the, or the most. I think what's most important is voters need to have choice. Voters need to have different methods to cast their ballot. People have different... Um, work schedules. They have different life requirements. They have different preferences. And I think that generally, if we're going to take serious our democracy and voter service, we should be making it uh, easier and more convenient for people to vote. So I do think that requires choice. One other thing I will say in particular about by-mail voting, though, uh, particularly, I think, among uh, election technologists, is it's important to note that from a purely technology standpoint, if you are central counting a lot of ballots mm-hmm. with technology at the central elections office, and if you don't have voting machines that are spread out all over your county in lots of different polling places, and provided you do that with enough transparency, your technology has, here's the wonky term, the surface attack area is less. Mm. I've really got just a couple computers and a couple scanners in a secure environment at the central elections office Mm -hmm. where you can have better control over that environment, there's a lot more variables that can happen with technology-heavy voting with many, many machines in lots of different places. True. I'll just add that as an aside. But but again, the most important, I think, is is voter choice and a balance of, of options. And and just to respond to the point you made, uh, you, you make a good point, but it's also true that decentralizing the counting makes it uh, harder for bad guys uh, to have their way in a, you know, with a few uh, strokes, a uh, few keystrokes. And it also makes it easier for the public to oversee elections, which is much harder, I find, uh, at least when it comes to vote-by-mail elections. But you know what, Eddie? I hope you will come back in the future so we can actually bicker about electronic voting and including <laughs> open source electronic voting and your old company, stuff like that, which would be much more fun. But, hey, we've got lives to save, a pandemic underway and an election coming up in weeks. So I really appreciate you uh, joining us today, Eddie, and uh, keep up your good work uh, answering the uh, nonsense out there uh, on Absolutely. Twitter and elsewhere.
Uh, you... my, my pleasure being with you, Brad. And, and as a final note, I'll say the one thing we can agree on is transparency on the voting process is what helps to build trust with the public. Transparency is what is going to produce confidence, and that's what we need in our democracy. I'm with you all the way there, brother. Uh, OsetFoundation.org is where you will find Eddie's work. Uh, you will find him also, as I said, on the Twitters at Eddie Perez TX. He's the Global Director of Technology and Standards at the Open Source Election Technology Institute. Thanks a bunch, Eddie. Great being with you, Brad. Really appreciate it, and thanks for all your work. Okay, uh, quick break, and we are, it's incredible, but we have to wait till the C block to get to Supreme Court <laughs> rulings at this point. That's how much is happening all at once. That is, and that's coming up next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. Mm. Well, I guess religious people don't have to worry about losing their religion in this country. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A couple of uh, pretty big uh, Supreme Court rulings out today, and uh, we have to push them all the way back to the C block yeah. in these United States. Because the crazy never stops. More employers who cite religious or moral grounds, doesn't even have to be religious, just moral, can decline to offer cost-free birth control coverage to their workers. The Supreme Court ruled on Wednesday upholding... Trump administration's rules change that could leave more than 70,000 women without free contraception, as everyone else is allowed under Obamacare, just not those of you lucky enough to have found employment with a religious institution or really any institution at this point that now claims to have some sort of religious or moral objection even though those institutions, actual religious institutions, were already exempt from having to offer free birth control to their employees. The high court ruled 7-2 to two for the administration, which had made a policy change, a rules change, to allow some employers to opt out of providing the no-cost birth control required by the Obama-era health care law. Though I suppose the good news is that if it was a rule that could be changed by the Trump administration, well, then a subsequent administration can change that rule back. Lower courts had previously blocked the Trump administration's changes. The ruling is a sizable election year victory for Donald Trump. Well, I guess he's got to win something this year. White House spokesperson, uh, say it for me, Kylie, <laughs> Kaylee McEnany. Thank you. Said in a statement, today's Supreme Court ruling is a big win for religious freedom and freedom of conscience. Adding that the court had once again vindicated the conscience rights of people of faith. Strongly disagreeing, however, was Democratic House Speaker and devout Catholic, by the way, Nancy Pelosi. She said in a statement that it is unconscionable that in the middle of the worst global pandemic in modern history, the administration is focusing on denying basic health care to women that is essential for their health and financial security instead of protecting lives and livelihoods. 
The administration has the statutory authority to craft the rules involved, including, quote, the contemporaneously issued moral exemption, according to Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote for a majority of the court. The government had previously estimated that the rule change would would, uh, cause about 70 to 126,000 women to lose contraception coverage in just one year. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited those numbers in her dissent, noting that today, for the first time, the court casts totally aside countervailing rights and interests in its zeal to secure religious rights to the nth degree, she wrote. Separately on Wednesday, the Supreme Court sided with two Catholic schools in California in a decision underscoring that certain employees of religious schools, hospitals and social service centers cannot sue for employment discrimination. That ruling, too, was by uh, seven to two with Ginsburg and Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissenting in both cases. As our friend Mark Joseph Stern at Slate reports there today, the Supreme Court stripped civil rights protections from hundreds of thousands of American workers on Wednesday in a sweeping decision that exempts countless religious employers from discrimination statutes. Justice Samuel Alito's majority opinion carved a huge loophole in the employment laws in all 50 states and at the federal government, allowing religious employers to discriminate against any worker that they deem to be, quote, ministerial. Well, what does that mean? The First Amendment bars the government from telling a religious institution who they may choose as their as its faith leader, which means that they can also not tell them who to fire or not if they are ministers in the church. As Mark writes, the basic premise makes sense. No one seriously argues that the government should not be able to tell a church that it cannot fire its priest. But religious institutions employ a lot of people who are decidedly not ministers. Christine Beale, for example, was one of the plaintiffs here. She was a fifth grade teacher at a Catholic school that classified her as a lay employee. She was not a minister. She was just a lay employee. It did not require that these uh, employees have religious training at all. She had none, no religious training. She primarily taught secular subjects. Her only religious duty at the school was joining the class in twice-daily prayer. Well, after Beale was diagnosed with breast cancer, the school terminated her contract. She sued, uh, describing it as disability discrimination, but when she sued the school... They raised the ministerial exception, suddenly announcing that, in fact, Beale amounted to a minister and thus had no right to sue for discrimination. Because, you know, she's a minister and that's out of bounds when the First Amendment and freedom of religion. She's not a minister. She had breast cancer. They didn't want to pay for it. They fired her. They wanted to cheat her. They they fired her and they're getting away with it. Yep. In her scathing dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor condemned the decision as, quote, profoundly unfair. The upshot of this new constitutional rule is that religious employers now have carte blanche to discriminate against any workers. After all, if anyone sues, their employer can simply deem them, quote, ministerial. As Sotomayor pointed out in her scathing dissent, Alito's laissez-faire analysis appears to allow that employer 
that employer to make employment decisions because of a person's skin color, age, disability, sex, or any other protected trait for reasons having nothing to do with religion. They can do that. They'll be allowed to get away with it. It is now perfectly legal and constitutional under this stolen Republican majority on the court. Morrissey Baru, uh, that's the uh, ca- one of the cases here, comes on the heels of Espinoza v. Montana, a 5-4 decision that will force a majority of states to fund parochial schools. Taken together, writes Mark Joseph Stern, these two decisions mark a startling expansion of constitutional, quote, religious liberty. Most states must now provide taxpayer money to parochial schools, yet at the same time, they are handcuffed from enforcing their own civil rights laws against the institutions that they are forced by big government to fund. The Supreme Court has not only bulldozed the wall separating church and state, writes Stern, it has also handed religious institutions a trump card that they can use when the state asks them to follow the rules that apply to the rest of us. Religious liberty is a fundamental American value, he writes, but in the hands of this court, it has become a weapon that employers can use to make the rest of us less free. So uh, that's where we are at the Supreme Court. I believe there is uh, another decision or two still to come, could come within the next 24 hours regarding Donald Trump's taxes and whether any of us ever get to see them, including prosecutors uh, who have a great interest in uh, looking at those on a criminal basis. We'll see what this court says. Want to take a guess, Des? I, uh, my guess is that it's going to be bad. It's all going to be bad, and it's going to be really awful, and, you know, just, just buckle up and be ready for well, it. Well, that's an easy guess. You could say that about anything that I uh, <laughs> asked you about these days. This is true. We'll see. Uh, all right, got to get out. My thanks to my guest today, Eddie Perez of OsetFoundation.org, to my producer, Desi Doyan, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That, of course, is made possible by those of you who support our efforts by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Always good to hear from you. And you can find and follow and share all that we do on the Facebooks and the Twitters. If you just look me up, at the Brad blog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>